Good morning, good morning. I'm Andy. I'm one of the Andrews, but you can call me Andy if you want. And uh, it's good to be here. Um, this past week, I, wanted, I was thinking about being on one of those summer beach projects. I know we have a number of students uh, and staff from King's Chapel, West Georgia, that are on what's called a summer beach project with campus outreach. Has anybody in here ever been on a summer beach project before? Raise your hand. Good handful of you. Uh, so I was thinking about the project this week as I was thinking about those students. My first project was about 26 years ago. It was really a great, a great summer for spiritual growth. It was the first time I had done anything like that. And uh, at the end of the summer, the staff director, his name was Mike Heron. Some of you know Mike Heron. Uh, he was here for a little while. And he pulled about all of the 140 students together, and he wanted to get us ready to go back home. And he said, I, I want you guys to realize one thing. It is not about how high you jump. It is about how straight you walk when you land. And what he knew was that we as students were having this incredible mountaintop experience at the project. We were seeing God in new ways. We were growing in our faith. We were eager to share our faith. But what he also knew is that very soon we were going to head home. And when we got home, we were going to land from that jump. And the question was, what would it look like for us when we got home spiritually? And I think that if any of us in this room have ever been walking with Christ, or if we've walked with Christ for any length of time, we've probably had experiences like that, where we, we felt so close to the Lord, we, we felt so connected, we, we sensed His work moving through us, and then, and then something happened, whether it's a conference or a retreat or a season in your spiritual life where you just felt so deep and connected to God. And what happened? So I, I actually do want to pray for those students this morning that are down there, uh, but I also want to show you that that is the very same thing that our text is about this morning, that there's this passage that we looked at last week in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah is having one of these moments where he has jumped pretty high. He, he is on Mount Carmel, and he has seen God show up in the midst of 450 prophets of Baal. And there was an altar and there was an offering and God came down in fire and consumed that offering. And it was so hot that it even licked up the water in the trenches. And at that moment, everybody glorified God. And they said, Yahweh is the one true God. Now that's a pretty high moment on a pretty high hill for the glory of God. And yet our question this morning as we get to 1 Kings 19 is, where is Elijah at when he hits the ground? And how will he walk? And so I want to read this passage in 1 Kings 19. It is so relevant, I think, to our life today in our, uh, the world that we live in. And so I want to read this passage. I want to take a minute to pray, and then we'll study it together. 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 1. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Now when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel of the Lord touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. A voice of the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. But the Lord said to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elijah will, be, will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for the opportunity to be together with your people in worship today. Uh, God, we would confess that um, to live in this world as followers of Jesus in a time where um, your word is thought of as irrelevant and intolerant, and we push back against that, makes this a dangerous calling. But it's always been a dangerous calling, and so I pray that God, this morning you would meet with us and energize us and mobilize us again for the places where we are most weary, where we are most discouraged. God, I pray that you would um, bring us together as the body of Christ and help us to see how you've gifted us and uh, what you're calling us to do with one another. God, I also pray for the students and the staff who are in Panama City this week. Uh, God, I pray that you would um, strengthen them. And God, to help them to have a persevering walk with the Lord. Protect them through your spirit and through your word. God, help them to have a vision for life in the kingdom in the midst of highs and lows. And so center us and stabilize us and move us out again through the, the peace of your spirit and the gentle whisper of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, unmet expectations are oftentimes such joy killers. I think about that often quoted proverb, 
heart deferred makes the heart sick. I could walk around everywhere I go this week with everyone that I meet, and I could say that to them, and I could get the nod of assent. Yes, I totally understand. Because we can all relate. When we have our hopes dashed, it makes us cynical. It makes us shut down. We're tempted to wall off our hearts and to become defensive, to throw in the towel. And so when Elijah, one of God's most faithful prophets, comes off this epic victory at Mount Carmel, this passage tells us he's not doing very well. In verses 3 through 5, it says that Elijah ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, which is about 100 miles south of Jezreel, where he had come from, he left his servant there. And then he went on a further journey into the wilderness where he sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that God would take his life. He says, I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down and he fell asleep. And so I want you to get the picture of this, of God's servant trying to live out the mission of God. He's exhausted. He passes out under this tree. He's lonely. Only the landscape of this wilderness can match the wilderness of his heart. He feels defeated. We have been struggling so long as the people of God. We need revival. I've given it everything I can, and yet I've failed just like everybody that's gone before me. He's ready to quit. This passage tells us that when he dismisses his servant, what that means is he's saying, I'm done with the mission. I can't do it anymore. And so you are relieved of your duties. He's ready to die. Elijah is calling it quits. He says, God, I've had enough. Take my life. He jumped. He got pretty high. And now he collapses. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're ready to mail it in? To call it quits? I know you have felt that way. Because I have felt that way. And I'm only 44 years old. We've all felt that way. I have a friend, though, who says the key to life is low expectations. And, I, you know, I'll just say <laughs> there's a lot of times where I'm really tempted to swallow the bait there, to take that advice. But I know this, that if I live that way, it will hollow me out and it will steal life away from me. But thankfully, what God has for us in this passage, I think is far better. But I think before we get there, we've got to understand Elijah's despair if we're to understand our own. And so number one, I want us to see the source of discouragement, the source of despair. You see, for a long time now, Israel, which is God's people, have been on this slow and steady decline away from God. And then King Ahab comes on the scene and he actually presses the gas pedal all the way down. He marries uh, this wicked Jezebel, and their marriage begins to provoke God's anger, 1 Kings 16 says, more than any other king before them. And so the people of God are becoming powerless. They're losing their voice in the community. They're, they're losing their way. They're losing their mission, unlike any time before them. And they begin to fall prey to worshiping the same gods as the culture around them and the nations around them, and it's tearing them apart. So God calls on Elijah, and he says, I'm going to get their attention. I'm going to do something pretty radical. 
I'm actually going to bring a drought into the land, and it's not going to rain here for years. Because what I want them to see is that the true condition of the land without water after years is going to mirror the true spiritual condition of their heart without me. And that's the only way they're going to be able to see it. You get that? That's what's going on here. This community of faith is on the brink of extinction. And so last week in 1 Kings 18, God decides to end the drought. And it is amazing. Elijah, he calls on Elijah and through him, he brings them in front of, he brings them in front of these 450 prophets in front of Ahab. And they, he drenches this altar and he brings this incredibly unpopular message in an increasingly anti-God world And he shows up. God shows up and the drought ends. The fire comes down and blows up the offering. And all the people, as it begins to rain in Israel, for the first time in a long time, they get down on their knees and they say, Yahweh is God. Now, Elijah hopes that along with that new rain on the land, that there is going to be an end to the spiritual drought in their community as well. And yet what happens is Ahab and Jezebel double down in their commitment to eradicate God and his prophets. This is what happens in verses 1 through 3. When Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, she says, "May May the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I don't take his life as well. And when Elijah heard that, he was afraid, and he ran for his life. Now, what I want you to understand is that when Elijah was afraid here, it wasn't really he was afraid that Jezebel was going to kill him. The fear, the terror that is gripping his heart is that God has shown up in the most powerful way that he could imagine. He is using Elijah like he has never done before. He has shown up with powerful preaching. He's just given his best sermon. He has done his best work, the biggest miracle, and actually it's done nothing in the hearts of the most powerful people. God has decisively moved through his prophet on behalf of his people, and yet the powers that be are totally unfazed. It's like nothing has happened. And for Elijah, that is terrifying. And all of his hope is immediately drained, and his vision is gone. You see, that's the heart of deep discouragement. It's when you've done everything you can, when you think, I've done it right, and you look around and it doesn't look like it's made any difference at all. Isn't that a terrible feeling? Isn't that so draining of hope? Where have you ever felt that way? Where have you ever been tempted to scream, but I'm doing it right? I'm doing it right in my marriage right now, and yet it seems like there's no renewed intimacy and connection and good communication. I'm doing it right in my parenting, and yet for some reason my kids still give me the middle finger. I mean, I'm doing it right as a a pastor, and yet it just doesn't seem like the people are committed around us. You know, this past week, we can just get a small taste of this anywhere in life. This past week, we had at our house like this invasion of millipedes. These little small bugs, they're harmless, they're small, but I'm telling you there were hundreds. 
There were hundreds. They're crawling all around. Ben Reed was at our house. He's shaking his head. He knows what I'm talking about. And so I tried to spray, and I tried to do some things, and I was vacuuming about hundreds of bugs, and eventually I just bit the bullet, and I called the Orkin man or whoever it was, and he came out with his little white hat and his pest poison, and he actually had this thing that he could, like, scrub the side of our house. He scrubbed every square inch of the side of our house with this pest control. He laid down these bait granules all over the yard. I mean, we were declaring all-out war. And so when we went to bed that night, Melissa and I high-fived. It was a mighty victory. And then the very next morning, the very next morning, the whole floor in the basement covered with hundreds of bugs again. So, I mean, this is it, right? We can, we can get it. That, like, let's just hold on to that heart that you have in moments like that in a microcosm, but in a much bigger way. This is what Elijah is experiencing as he's seeing what he thinks is the kingdom of God making no progress, even after this mighty declaration and show of power. So do you ever want to quit? I want you to know how deeply I understand what that feels like. But I also want you to know that I think that these are the moments where God wants to reveal to us our deepest desires as image bearers in a broken world. And that God, instead of letting us quit, He may actually want us to spend some time there. And He may be willing to actually let us get to places of deep despair where we feel like we can't go on because He knows it's the only way that we're actually going to get to Him and His people and His Word for full renewal. I want you to listen to Elijah's complaint. This reveals his deepest desires and also his most frustrating disappointments. Verse 10, but I have been very zealous for you, Lord. Do you hear it? I've done it right. I've given it my very best. And yet the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Translation, God, they don't want a relationship with you. They're not coming to church anymore, and they think your word is intolerant and irrelevant. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that we live in a part of the world right now where that kind of thinking prevails. And I think that we know it. And I think that sometimes it makes us feel defeated before we even get started. It's as if we know nothing we do will matter. And so we don't do anything. We write evangelism off. We don't want to even think about it anymore. We're not willing to take risks in our relationships with other people. We give up on building these intentional relationships with people who aren't believers and we're tempted to disengage. But I think that if we're going to labor here in this world, in this community, I think we're going to have to get honest. We're going to have to stay together on mission. We're going to have to be honest about what we're up against and how we're going to define success. I think if we don't, we'll be tempted to be too optimistic or too inflated about the wrong things. And we'll be too pessimistic about the truly important things. We won't be hopeful enough 
about the mustard seeds where the kingdom is growing all around us. Here is Elijah, and he's reading the tea leaves from what Jezebel is giving him. The threats, the discouraging headlines, and the power structures of the day are telling him that God is not up to anything, and it's a lie. Where might that be happening in your life right now? When you look at the news, when you scroll through social media, what is grabbing your attention? What is, where are you tempted to overinflate the importance of certain things and underappreciate the king's behind-the-scenes work on dismantling idols and growing faith all around you? I, I could give you some ideas of what that might look like. But do you know what I think would be far better? It's if you got into a community group and you discussed it there. If you found a small group and you actually talked about, this is where I'm scared and this is where I get discouraged and this is where I think I hyperinflate what's going around in the country around me. And yet, let's pray about it together. Because this is where we get to see the work of Christ. This is where we get to encourage one another with truth and love and to be together and to be honest. Tim Keller said this week uh, on Facebook in one of those little quotes, both secularism and devout faith are growing, but what's going away is the mushy middle of religiosity. To me, what that means is that for those who stay on mission... In the next several years, there's going to be a growing disparity, a more distinct contrast between the followers of Christ and those who want nothing to do with Him, and so also the potential for discouragement and disillusionment and despair. It's going to get hard. We're going to feel alone. We're going to feel misunderstood, and we're going to feel like we're losing. But what God says in this passage is that there is hope. But that hope is found in communion with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in the presence of God through His Word and the presence of God through His people that brings renewed hope for exhausted disciples. And so I want us to look at point number two, which is God's plan for renewal. And as we look at God's plan for renewal, I want to give you three hooks, three phrases from the text that have been helpful for me this week to kind of remember what God is up to and how I can apply this in my life. And I I think that this is, they sort of represent God's comprehensive care plan for exhausted disciples. And they're all meant to be tied together. Like you can't separate them. They're meant to work together to get us back on our feet. And so the first one, the first hook is in verse five. It says, get up and eat. I really love this uh, passage. If you look at verse 5, get up and eat. Here's this exhausted servant. He's ready to quit. And you know what the first thing that happens is? The angel of the Lord comes, and um, do you know what he says to him when the angel of the Lord comes to Elijah? He says, behold, good tidings of great joy. He actually doesn't say that. He just says, let's eat. He touches him, and he says, I've got food for you. I need to think about how beautiful that is, that the angel, the, the first thing that God does with this weary servant is, I've cooked a meal for you. You need touch. You need nearness. You need something to eat. You need rest. You need to go back to sleep. It's God's restoration plan, so wise 
and tender. I want you to think about this in Christ's ministry. Think about how Jesus does this. What does he say to the worn out and exhausted Peter who's walked away from the faith, who's ready to quit? He says, Peter, come eat. Let's have a fish fry together. It's amazing. Think about what he says to the uh, Jarius's uh, and his community around him when the 12-year-old little girl is raised from the dead. First thing he says is, she's exhausted. Let's get her some food. She's probably pretty weak. Think about the leper. Jesus doesn't say, let's pray about your troubles. He touches him. Touch, nearness, food. How beautiful is this? See what God's doing here. He's elevating our physical and relational needs, saying they're just as important. They shouldn't be overlooked when we're caring for one another. And so God comes first with touch, good meal, and rest. I want you to see what also God does in this passage. The next thing that God does is he listens to Elijah. He draws him out. He asks him, actually he asks him a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, I want you to remember <laughs> that this is God. And so when God is asking a question, it's not like, Elijah shows up in the cave and he's like, Elijah, what are you doing here? You look exhausted. What happened? You look frazzled. Whenever God asks questions, he's not trying to get insight or information. He is trying to give insight to his servant at the soul level. He is drawing Elijah out. He is engaged with his emotions and his deep desires and this places of psychological despair where he feels crushed and he's bleeding all over this cave emotionally. And God comes in and he says, hey, hey, what's going on? What is really going on in the depths of your heart? Are you having conversations like that within the body of Christ? Do you have people that you're willing to go to those depths with? Listen to what um, Ralph Davis, the commentator, says about this passage, this question Now, what are you doing here? This question is one of tender kindness to relieve the full burdened heart of the prophet that he, to whom the great privilege of being able to complain of his sorrow had so long been denied, might be moved to reveal his desire, to to pour out his whole heart before the Lord. Don't you think we need that? Think of Christ. Wasn't he so good at that, at asking questions? He says, what are you seeking to the blind man, to his disciples. What do, you, what do you want me to do for you? He asked Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? You think he doesn't know the answer to the end of these questions? Of course he knows. But he's trying to get them to sit still and to get into their heart. He's saying, I want you to slow down and I want to know your heart. Would you pour it out before me? God's care is so comprehensive, so physical, emotional, and relational And so I I just want to ask you right now, where do you think we get that kind of care right now? I mean, is is God walking in the door today with uh, hot cakes over the coals and a jug of water? No, we get that through the, the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. How does Christ show up and meet these physical and relational and emotional and psychological needs, he does it through us. Do you realize how important you are then to one another in helping us overcome discouragement and despair? You're all needed. I am needed, every one of you. We are on mission together.
Second hook. Renewal comes by encountering God's presence in the person and work of Jesus and through his word. The second hook is this. First we had get up and eat, and now we have go out and meet. Go out and meet, verse 11. The Lord said, go up, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now, where in the world would we see the person of Jesus in this passage? He doesn't even come for another thousand years. Where's Jesus here? Well, this mountain called Mount Horeb in your Bible is actually also called Mount Sinai. And it's the same mountain where Moses had the presence of God pass by him while he was hidden beneath a cleft in the rock. And in verse 8, it says that when Elijah got to the mountain of God, he also went into a cleft or a hollowed out rock like a cave. And just like Moses the glory of the Lord is going to pass by him. And look at, listen to what happens. It says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, and it shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And the earthquake, after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Here's Elijah as God is passing by. Please get the picture of this. I mean, he is hidden in this mountain. And this mountain is coming apart at the seams. Rocks are being thrown around. There's a blazing fire. Earthquake is splitting this thing in two. Elijah in God's presence should be a dead man. And yet he's not crushed. He's not condemned. He is safe, and everything goes quiet. Why? It says he gets a gentle whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, he went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And it's after this, being in God's presence, only then is he able to come out of the darkness and be commissioned to be a different man. And why? Because only because years later, Christ would ascend a different mountain where the wind and the earthquake and the fire of God's judgment would come down on him on Mount Calvary. And because we are covered, because Elijah in that moment is covered by the rock, then he doesn't get God's judgment. He gets God's whisper of grace. We sing a song here, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. Do you know how it goes? Let us praise the Savior's name. Listen, he has hushed the law's loud thunder, and he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Who's done that? The Savior. He is the rock that we are covered by, that atones for us, the person and work of Jesus. This is who we are called to meet with in his word. And it's why we get the gentle whisper, not the words of condemnation. We get the words of favor and grace. Listen, what God has in mind for exhausted servants who are ready to quit is not storms of condemnation and rebuke, and it's certainly not the silent treatment. But instead, it is the gentle whisper of his word. And Elijah simply has to be still enough. He has to become idle. He has to move through the wilderness, and he has to get quiet. And when that happens, he is renewed by the presence of the Lord. And so I want to ask you, 
I mean, this is pretty straightforward. But how are you doing with that? Are you slowing down enough in your life? You turn off the cell phone, ever. Is it always right by you? Are you ever pulling away for time to get idle and slow and to interact and enjoy the person and work of Jesus in the places where the idols of your life are dismantling you? We cannot become trees that provide shade in a world around us unless we have deep roots that go down into the work of Christ through his word. And so are you slowing down? Are you getting quiet? Are you resting in the work of Christ and meeting with him and listening for his gentle whisper? Last hook. The last hook is go back and lead. Go back and lead. All right? The reason that God meets with us and refreshes us with his word is to send us back into mission. And so if you're here today, if you are still breathing and you are a follower of Christ, it means God is saying, I'm not done with you yet. I know you're tired and I know it's hard. And I know you look out in the world, you think it won't make any difference, but you have no idea what I'm up to. And so when Elijah left Jezreel, he was ready to quit. He'd given his best. It seemingly, seemingly made no impact. And here now God says, I'm not finished with you. Go back and, and lead. Here's what it says. Go back the way you came. Anoint Haziel. Anoint Jehu. Anoint Elisha. And oh, by the way, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to know that you are not alone. You are not alone. Okay, you have a team around you. And you are to belong to this leadership network, this intentional plan of discipling and being discipled. You are not meant to do this alone. As long as you try to say, my zeal, I'm all by myself, I've been doing it, then you are going to continually be exhausted. But to the degree that you are tied and tethered, to my people and my word through my people, then you will experience the presence of God. I want you to see this, Elijah. You think you're the only one. You are not alone. There are other leaders I want you to connect to. And I know that number 7,000 may seem relatively small to what you were hoping for, but I need you to remember I'm still at work. And what moves this kingdom forward is my, is this is God saying, it's his own stubborn dogmatism. It's not your zeal, it's mine. And what I will be doing is building my church. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says to Peter, hey, listen, I will build my church and the kingdom, the gates of Hades will not prevail it. It's going to start small, just a handful. But that's how my kingdom grows, mustard seed, small steady, steadfast. I'm committed. It's my bride. It's my church. And so as we as a church, we need to be proactively participating in this network of leadership, growing as leaders, passing on leadership to others. You may not think you're a leader. You are a leader in God's kingdom. You are a leader because leadership in the kingdom is discovering your gifts, and we're all called to do that, and using them to bless and to serve others within this missional network of disciples. Isn't that beautiful? You are a part 
of God's kingdom. And so the reason I keep wanting you this morning, I keep saying this. Do you see Christ? Do you see Christ? Do you see Christ in that? The reason I want you to know that is because the, the way that we see Christ's glory and power and his faithful ministry, his atoning sacrifice for you, is the way that all these promises are realized. So we could say, man, we want to storm the gates. We want to take the hill. And God says there's no power in that. The power is in the promises of Jesus Christ. And all my promises to you that my kingdom will go forward and that I will always have a people for myself, those promises to you are yes and amen in Christ. Do you want to know what the hope of glory is? It's Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. You can't do this. Your zeal, your tears, your sorrows, only Christ in you and Christ in us together. That's the hope of glory. And his work and his presence are continually inviting us, all who are weary, come to me and you will have rest and strength for your souls. Um, You're probably familiar with Herman Melville's Moby Dick. There is the story of Captain Ahab and his ship that are moving out into turbulent waters, uh, the, the de- demonic sea monster, the great whale, uh, Moby Dick. And as the Captain Ahab is directing this ship out to sea, there's this really chaotic scene. All the, all the oarsmen are just pumping their muscles and they're working the oars and they are fiercely committed to this and the waves are churning and the boat looks like it's going to fall over and everybody's frenetic with activity except for one person and it's the harpooner. The harpooner is perfectly still and this is what Melville writes, to ensure the greatest efficiency of the dart, the harpooner of this world must rise to their feet out of idleness and not toil. You see, God's put us on a mission to be harpooners in this world, to dismantle idols. And if we are going to endure in that mission, then our work, our mission must start out of idleness, out of encountering God in his word and the refreshment of his spirit, not out of the toil of our own work. Let's pray together, and then we'll go to the table. Well, Father, we, um, we're all coming from various places this morning um, and tempted to feel exhausted and ready to quit, uh, maybe on a number of different landscapes. And so you know us, you know each one of us individually, you know what we need, whether it's a meal or a word of encouragement, good conversation, or time alone with you in your word. But God, thank you that what all of those things point to is Jesus. You alone can refresh us. Your word and your spirit are living waters. Waters that well within us in places that we didn't even know were possible. And so, Lord God, we pray that as we come to the table as the community of faith, we might see happen in our midst and in this community more than all we could ask or imagine. For these promises are yes and amen in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.